Due to themes of child sexual abuse and exploitation, the content of this podcast may be distressing to some people. It is not suitable for children and listener discretion is advised. For advice and support, please visit accce.gov.au. So sextortion is the word that we use to describe people who are obtaining sexualised images while extorting that person or using threats to coerce them to provide that material. I think sextortion occurs across the spectrum, but we obviously in child protection are focused on the sextortion of children. This is an escalating global issue. We are still seeing sex offenders abuse children, but we are increasingly seeing children essentially as sexually abuse themselves. People just do not believe you and then don't want to see the imagery to be shown. You don't want to put them in that position, but it's a very difficult conversation to have once it has taken place and it's something that can't be undone. What they do is a despicable act and that notwithstanding the challenges we face in running these investigations, uh, we are 100% resolved to following up all information that we can access and prosecuting anyone we can identify. In my opinion, these people are the weakest of the weak because they're abusing and using force against defenceless children. I've always hated bullies. That was one of the reasons why I joined the federal police and pedophiles are amongst the worst bullies in the world. I'm Roger Corsa, and this is Closing the Net, a podcast series that explores the world of those policing online child sexual exploitation the men and women who work tirelessly to eradicate this borderless crime. From the women and men who dedicate their lives to ending this crime type, to those working tirelessly to provide knowledge, tools and resources that will help keep our kids safe online, these are their stories. In this episode, we talk to global experts to try and understand what motivates an online child sex offender and how law enforcement is using that information to help protect our kids. And later, a father takes us through what can only be described as any parent's worst nightmare. It was about 9 o'clock at night or 8 o'clock at night and and he said he had to go to his room urgently and he picked his phone up and I said, no, well, you can leave your phone here. And he goes, no, I need my phone. And I'm like, what for? And he just started shaking. Some of the stories you'll hear in this episode may be confronting. But there's stories that need to be told. Stories that need to be talked about by parents, carers, teachers, by people such as you and I. The sexual abuse of a child is something that is simply unimaginable. Yet last year alone, the ACE received more than 21,000 reports of online child sexual exploitation. 21,000. And that's just Australia. That anyone would want to inflict harm on an innocent child, let alone sexual harm or abuse, is something that's incredibly difficult for most of us to comprehend. So just who are these people who want to target children and abuse them in this way? What motivates them to act on their disturbing thoughts? And how can we, as everyday members of the community, identify them? These are not easy questions to answer. In much the same way that there's not just one type of victim, there's not just one type of offender. The ACE is working closely with the AIC, 
the Australian Institute of Criminology to try and understand what makes these individuals tick. Sarah Napier is part of the AIC's research team which analyses different areas of child sexual abuse material and online offending. In terms of looking at the profile of people who view and share child sexual abuse material online, when we're looking at the majority of cases that involved an arrest, you're looking at a white male, typically aged 35 to 45 years old, well-educated and with stable employment, but lacking in certain areas like intimate and other relationships, lacking in social skills and interactions, and also lacking in self-esteem. Now, in saying that, there isn't really one profile that fits all. We do see a lot of people from various different backgrounds and ages viewing this type of material, but that's just sort of the typical profile that we see in the arrest stats. But a typical profile in the arrest stats doesn't mean there's such a thing as a typical offender. In recent years, the AFP has been seeing more and more online child sex offenders of a younger age, something which Sarah Napier says could have a connection with access to pornography. In terms of increasing the likelihood that someone's going to view this material or share this material, if you're viewing adult pornography at a high frequency, you're much more likely to view child sexual abuse material. If you're viewing other deviant forms of pornography, for example, if you're viewing bestiality pornography, you're much more likely to view child sexual abuse material. If you're contact sexual offending against children, not surprisingly, you're also more likely to view this child sexual abuse material. Now, in saying that, it doesn't mean that everyone who has these characteristics is going to view this material, but if you do have these kind of characteristics, you're more likely to go on to view this material. Dr Rick Brown is Deputy Director of the AIC. Their research suggests that people viewing or sharing child sexual abuse material are often learning their offensive behaviours on the run, including learning more about the sophisticated techniques they can use to access material and hide their identity. Most people that get into this kind of viewing and, and subsequent sharing of material will start off in a, in a very amateur way and they'll, they'll escalate from there as they learn from, from other offenders in forums and chat rooms. They'll learn how to access different sorts of parts of the web where that sort of material can be found. So most of us wouldn't know where to go looking, but you know, by, by learning from others, you know, they'll learn how peer-to-peer -peer networks operate, you know, how to access image sharing and file sharing sites where this sort of material is, is accessed, and ultimately you know, move on to that more serious material that's available on the darknet. And that's an area where learned behaviour is really important because it's not easy. You need to learn how to, to create anonymity before you, get, you know, move on to using Tor so that you don't leave that digital footprint. Well, that's learned behaviour, that's sophisticated behaviour. So there is, a, there is a process by which individuals become more sophisticated over time, I think, as they get into it. Understanding the mindset of a child sex offender and how they interact with others engaged in the same activity is a vital part of identifying what kinds of initiatives may help prevent, disrupt and reduce this crime type. Dr Michael Burke is Chief Psychologist of the Behavioural Analysis Unit inside the United States Marshals Service. Michael's dedicated much of his life to try and get inside the minds of child sex offenders in an attempt to find out what motivates them to commit such unspeakable crimes against children. There's probably four primary pathways, and these can overlap with one another. 
The first is a sexual attraction to children, such as pedophilia or what we call hebophilia, which is sexual attraction to teenagers. Uh, the second is a worldview or approach to life that permits indulgences such as hedonism over moral behavior. The third would be antisocial traits, whether that meets the criteria for a personality disorder or psychopathy, or if it's simply profound selfishness. It's a paucity or an absence of empathy. And uh, this could include profiteers such as pimps or traffickers, as well as those who physically abuse children in addition to sexually abusing them. And the fourth would be other related paraphilias, other deviant predilections to include sadism. Child sex offenders will go to great lengths to hide their identity and be anonymous with their activity. It allows them to live what may appear to be from the outside relatively normal lives. Sex offenders are capable of engaging in what we call compartmentalizations. They divvy their lives up into these compartments where in one compartment they might be doing things in secrecy, things in the darkness that they would not want anyone to know about. Um, these are the deviant or abusive or exploitative types of behaviors. Whereas in other compartments, not only are they not monstrous, but in fact, they might engage in what I call moral compensation. So the pendulum will even swing a little bit further. They will be, uh, you know, contributing to charitable organizations. They will have positions within a, a church or temple. You know, they will be seen in their community as sort of these upstanding uh, men and women, the people to look up to, the role models, the coaches, or the leaders of youth-serving organizations. They're a cross-section of humanity. They're not our lowest of the low. They're everybody. We had surgeons and attorneys, we had coaches from colleges, we had homeless individuals who had long histories of crime. You know, it really runs the gamut. I think it's a mistake to act as if they have horns and are out there being completely destructive because I think what it does is it, it hides that fact that they can appear so normal. And in many ways they are, you know, they can be very good school teachers. They can be very effective coaches. Many, many sex offenders, the parents of the children around them would say, oh, they're so good with children. And there's a compartment and there's an aspect to their lives that involves abusing and exploiting some of our most vulnerable fellow citizens, the children, the elderly, people with disabilities. They exploit those individuals. I would put it this way. Not only do predators and sex offenders groom children, but they're also grooming us. They're grooming the community. They're grooming our organizations. Awareness is very important for people. You know, it doesn't mean we need to go out and become junior police officers, but vigilance is a way to salt the fields for sex offenders so that they don't really have as many opportunities to exploit children when they know that we are aware of the signs and that we are being vigilant with regard to child protection. The reason the work of psychologists like Michael Burke is so important comes down to their knowledge about offender behaviours and the subsequent training that he and others can provide to law enforcement agencies working within the area of child protection. Agencies like the ACE right here in Australia. Based in the Irish city of Cork, Joe Sullivan is a forensic psychologist who provides law enforcement agencies with insights around how child sex offenders function. 
when it comes to investigations, um, the role that I that I am asked to play often is initially, as an investigation is beginning, will be to inform the investigators about the particular type of crime uh, that they are looking at. Not the general overview, but here we have a child that has been murdered or a child that has been abducted or a child that has been groomed online. What can I tell the investigators about the behavior and psychological characteristics of someone who will commit that type of crime? In investigations, I will narrow the focus significantly more into the the type of crime all the while trying to gather information about if there's a, a particular suspect. And that's that's generally when I, I get asked to move to the, the next layer of what I can assist law enforcement with, which is the creation of a, of a customized interview strategy for a particular suspect. And, and so when a suspect is identified, I would be interested in any information that we can gather about that person anything about their history, uh, their background, their behavioral characteristics, all of that will be compiled into a character analysis of that particular person that then allows me to customize uh, with the officers who are going to do the interview, customize the interview strategy, and I can offer them advice about the type of questions that they can ask and the ways that they might approach someone of these these particular characteristics so that they have a, a point of reference where they can come and ask questions about particular angles that they may want to approach during an investigation. With online child sexual exploitation being a borderless crime, it's never been more important for Australian police to have strong international collaboration. The AFP and the ACE work with international organisations like Interpol and Europol to share intelligence, online data and resources. Cahol Delaney leads the team at Europol dealing with child sexual exploitation and says experience has shown that, as opposed to having a particular MO, offenders will utilise a number of ways to try and access children online. There are a lot of different ways in which offenders approach children. So what they will try to do is identify a child who is vulnerable in some way, and they will try to build up a conversation with them, gain their confidence, essentially. Usually they could come across them in in any number of environments. It could be in social media where they create an account that mimics a child of the same sex or a child of the opposite sex. Sometimes a child that's slightly older or maybe an, an early adult because that can be attractive. And then they will uh, develop that relationship. Almost certainly will take them off the platform where they've originally met them. It could also be a gaming platform into a more secure and and possibly encrypted channel. And then they will uh, start to ask them to uh, give them more intimate details. They may ask them to provide intimate photos of themselves. Once they have intimate photos, then there are multiple possibilities available to them, including extorting more material. Online child exploitation is not something that simply happens in other countries. It happens here, in Australia, in our homes. And it can happen quickly. For Peter's 12-year-old son, all it took was one hour. One hour and Peter's son had been trapped by an online offender. At his request, we've not used the father's real name and have disguised his voice. 
in my, my son's case, they start by, you know, pretending to be a girl around their age or a boy, whatever they're interested in. You know, send them a photo and then say, send me a photo of you. And of course, it's a fake photo. Then once they have that first nude photo of you, they then go, right, now you've got to do this or I'm going to send that to your friends or I'm going to post that on the internet or I'm going to send it to your football team. And they start extorting, getting their kids to make videos, do things to themselves that are quite painful, take more photos, even start a live video things with them and they make demands of them and commands of them. They're under their complete control. And then the more the kids do, the more they're able to extort from them because they're able they then use that material to threaten further to distribute the material or send it to their friends or post it. The manner in which they're controlled exploited the fear that they've they go through he still today would be hoping that some of this stuff doesn't surface in the first hour of the first day of contact the online sex offender had accessed the first photo of peter's son from there the exploitation spiraled into a living nightmare very fast first hour of the first day and after that, the, ne the whole next month was just a continued exploitation. You know, it didn't matter what situation you were in, if you were having a, a dinner or, or whatever, he, he would go through it, you know, he'd be exploited. He had to, he was threatened, no, I need a video now, I need a, a, a photo now, and it needs to be like this, and you need to insert this here, and you need to do that there. And, you know, there's recordings where, you know, he's crying and saying, this is hurting me, and, and the guy's going, you've got to do it, or if I, don't, if I don't have this in the next three minutes, I'm sending, you know, this stuff to, you know, your schoolmates and all that type of stuff. The moment of disclosure turned the world upside down for Peter and his son. He was with me. It was about nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night and he said he had to go to his room urgently and he picked his phone up and, and I said, no, well, you can leave your phone here. And he goes, no, I need my phone. And I'm like, what for? I said, no, and he just started shaking. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I've got to go to my room. And I said, you don't have to go to your room. What's going on? And he said, I'm, I'm scared to tell you. I said, well, if you're scared to tell me, then you really need to tell me. He goes, I'm frightened of what will happen. And he sat down with me and I've got a very good, close relationship with him. He um, told me that there was a guy communicating with him over Instagram. Brendan Haler works within child protection operations at the AFP and led the investigation into the abuse of Peter's son in 2019. So he sat down and spoke with his father about it, and his father was very good in um, knowing who to contact and getting in contact with the AFP, and also being able to provide us with really detailed information, which allowed us to base the investigation on some good information and get it moving quite quickly. I didn't block the person straight away. I asked my son to go through all the communication that he had had, and I said, just tell him you'll be there in, in one minute. He actually knew how to do screen recordings. The way these kids get through their devices is incredible. He did a screen recording of all the communication and everything that he'd had with this person, and he, he was shaking crazily. We were able to get a copy of the entire Instagram conversation that had occurred between this young person and the offender. So we could see the chat from beginning to end. Um, we could see when images were shared and how videos were shared. We couldn't see the actual material that wasn't captured but it gave us a really good idea of how this person was operating. It was an example where in that chat, it was only three or four lines before the offender was requesting images of the child and that the child was providing those images. It got more sexualized after that, but it didn't take very long at all. 
And then I informed the pedophile at the other end. I said, this is his father. You're not going to be communicating with him anymore. I'm going to do my best to track you down. And any time you share any of his material will bring me closer to you. And you're not communicating with him. And then he, um, you know, he, he wrote back to my son and said, uh, yeah, nice one. I know it's you. It's not your dad. And then I stupidly sent him a photo of myself um, pointing down the lens and then tightened something. The next time you see this face, you'll be in jail. In that incredibly difficult moment, Peter had the sense to realise that blocking the offender and deleting his son's account would be a mistake if he didn't download all the data first. We downloaded all the data in my son's account, which you can do. So on all those social media accounts, you can download all the data. And I then went and removed all information that identified him one by one. So changed his name, removed photos. I just changed the profile completely so it was a different name, anything like that, and then deactivated it. Disclosing the sextortion was an incredibly brave step for Peter's son. The trust placed in each other by father and son, the way they handled the information and the reporting to police was what ultimately led to the arrest of the offender. We arrested a 22-year-old male. And as a result of searching his house, we found a number of hard drives, which contained a catalogue, essentially, of images and videos that he'd captured. And it revealed that he'd been doing this before and that he'd done it for quite a while and he'd had quite a collection of, of young people who he had extorted on Instagram and other platforms and kept the recordings of those interactions. So most of the children on Instagram were aged between about um, 8 to 14, but he had images and material from children as young as 4 or 5 years old. Kirsty Clark is a member of the victim identification team within child protection at the AFP, who are responsible for trying to identify these other victims. So the victim identification team focuses on identifying victims depicted in child abuse material, a small and dedicated team who provides assistance to all investigators where child abuse material is located by the AFP with an aim to identifying the child depicted in the seized material. My role in this particular operation was to sort through the seizure and try and group the victims together and get those clues to try and identify and find a location so investigators could go out and speak to them. Some victims were easily able to be identified, for example, by their school shirt or their school logo on their shirt that they were wearing uh, or their username on their social media platform. But others required a significant amount of work to establish a location. I guess one of the big things about when I actually look at the material, building the intelligence profile around the victim. For example, if I see certain bedspreads or toys or pyjamas or clothing, I would mark that as an item of interest because we might see that child wearing that pyjama or having that toy six months down the track. And so I can go back uh, using the software and say, show me all images with that child wearing that pyjama. So we would be able to link that child to the actual abuse material itself. In the case of Peter's son, the full extent of the offender's behaviour was revealed over a period of months after Kirsty and her team had painstakingly gone through all the material. So after months and months of sorting the material, it was established that there were over 100 children in Australia and overseas that were in contact with our Australian offender. 
He was particularly manipulative and really preyed on vulnerable children. And I got the sense that he knew there was a real fear in children that their parents would find out and he took advantage of that. He was very sophisticated and pretended to be someone else using their photograph or persona and had multiple personas in order to talk to these children and gain their trust and connect with that victim. Once he built that relationship with those children and he gained their trust, he was then able to get sexually explicit material off them and then used that sexually explicit material to blackmail them to produce further material of themselves. We don't know how long that offender would have kept going for. Over 100 victims is significant. But in a year's time, could he have had 250 victims? So we we just don't know. We've heard how people who target children for the purposes of sexual harm can be very adept at hiding that part of their life. They exist in everyday communities with very few people aware of their dark behaviour. The fact that they target children via devices, which these kids are using to socialise with their friends, do homework and play games, makes the behaviour even more insidious. Detective Inspector John Rouse is a veteran of child sexual abuse investigations and has been tracking and pursuing online offenders since the early days of the internet. He's told parents if they'd seen what he'd seen, they'd never allow kids in their bedroom with an internet-capable device. Many things prompted that, (laughs) but I think... Uh, one particular video that I saw was was the catalyst, a video recorded screen capture of a Skype communication between a child sex offender and a child. And all you could see was the text commands that the child sex offender gave the child. But you could see that this child sitting in front of her web camera and in what appeared to be her bedroom in her house. And at one point I do remember, you could actually hear a member of the family call out to her through the door. I've seen many, many challenging things in my career, but to see a little girl who would be about 12 or 13 crying, tears streaming down her face at the beginning of this video was really, really sad because she knew what she was about to go through. And for the next 37 minutes, she obeyed the instructions of this individual and performed some horrendous acts on herself in what you would think would be the safety and sanctity of her own home while her family were home. And the end of the video finishes with the offender telling her that not to tell anybody, he won't put it on the internet. She'd been a good slave. There are simply no words to describe the level of abuse being experienced by these kids at the hands of these offenders. Sadly, there are many victims whose stories are yet to be told. Still, according to ACE market research around awareness of online child sexual exploitation, 80% of Australian parents believe it'll never happen to their kids. Unfortunately, there may come a time when some of these parents receive a visit from police and their innocence, or maybe ignorance, will be shattered. AFP Detective Superintendent Paula Hudson works at the ACE and leads the AFP Child Protection and Human Trafficking Operations teams. Paula says breaking the news to a parent that their child's been a victim of online sexual exploitation can be devastating. 
it's um, one of the hardest jobs for our our members. I guess you go you know to the house and speak to the to the family. People don't believe it. The hard part about passing the message and saying we actually have a video or photographs of your child being abused, that's the hard message to pass. But in the main, most people don't believe you when you're saying that to them because people don't want to believe it. They would rather go straight into denial because people just do not believe you and then don't want to see the imagery to be shown. You don't want to put them in that position, but it's a very difficult conversation to have once it has taken place and it's something that can't be undone. It's heartbreaking to think that these conversations need to be had at all. It really does bring home how important it is to teach our kids about protecting themselves online. Kirsty Clark has three simple messages for kids. Keep your wits about you online and don't take off your clothes and don't give out your personal information. It sounds basic, but if an offender doesn't know your personal information, they don't have photographs or images of you without your clothes and you're being just having your wits about you online, they really cannot take advantage of you. They can't blackmail you. It sounds simple, but they're the type of things that we need to get out to victims and or, or children on online. If you can just remember those three things, we'll have a lot more kids being safe online. Once we give our kids access to an internet-enabled device, we have to know that they can chat to anyone and anyone from anywhere in the world can chat to them. It's about having that open conversation with your kids, knowing what applications that they're on and just being one step ahead of them. Get on the apps that they're on. Know who they're talking to online. And if something does happen, don't punish them. Don't take away their internet access. It's about having that open conversation and being educated and just being open with your child just to know what they're doing and help them through a pretty challenging time in their life. They're growing up and they're having to have a persona online, which we need to kind of keep on top of, but we don't want them to be isolated at the same time. It's why the most important chat is the ongoing one parents need to be having with their kids around online safety. In episode five of Closing the Net, we speak with some remarkable families who've experienced the unimaginable, but somehow managed to find a way of turning their grief into hope. There was a resolve within our family that whoever took Daniel, whoever was responsible, is not going to destroy this family. And we made sure we had time for each other and we gave each other a bit of space if you're on a better day than somebody else. I just knew I had to do something and I guess I just didn't see any limitation. If my daughter had to face what she had to face, you know, she's not going to go through such suffering for nothing and I'm going to make sure of it. If the content in this podcast has caused any distress or if you know a child is being contacted or groomed online, visit accce.gov.au to find out how to report and where you can seek support. If you see child abuse material online, it's important to report it to the office of the eSafety Commissioner who can help get it removed. And if you think a child is in immediate danger, please call 000 or your local police. You can provide anonymous information to crimestoppers.com.au 
or by phoning 1800 333 000. The opinions, beliefs and viewpoints expressed by the individuals featured in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs and viewpoints of the ACE or the AFP. Closing the Net is a production of the Australian Centre to Counter Child Exploitation and the Australian Federal Police. Written and researched by Nicole Gunn and Dave Carter with additional research by Anna Swain. Audio production by Daryl Misson. Original music by Kyle Gutterson. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you found this podcast informative, please take the time to share it, write a review and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. To learn more about the work of The Ace with regards to online child sexual exploitation, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit the website accce.gov.au.